You're listening to Vatican Radio. In this week's edition of Gospel Truth, the late Jill Bevilacqua and Sean Patrick Lovett bring us readings and reflections from the Gospel of St. John, chapter 12, verses 20 to 33, for the fifth Sunday of Lent. Among those who had come up to worship at the Feast of Passover were some Greeks. They approached Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and put this request to him. Sir, we should like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Philip and Andrew, in turn, came to inform Jesus. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I solemnly assure you, unless the grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains just a grain of wheat. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. The man who loves his life loses it, while the man who hates his life in this world preserves it to life eternal. If anyone would serve me, let him follow me. Where I am, there will my servant be. Anyone who serves me, the Father will honor. My soul is troubled now. Yet what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? But it was for this that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from the sky. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. When the crowd of bystanders heard the voice, they said it was thunder. Others maintained an angel was speaking to him. Jesus answered, That voice did not come for my sake, but for yours. Now has judgment come upon this world. Now will this world's prince be driven out. And I, once I am lifted up from earth, will draw all people to myself. This statement of his indicated the sort of death he was going to die. Long as this gospel is, it's less than half as long as the one which used to be read on the Saturday after Passion Sunday and from which today's extract comes. But the fifth Sunday of Lent is no longer called Passion Sunday. Before the Second Vatican Council, the last two weeks of Lent were known as Passiontide, the most austere period of the season of Lent, we may read in the old Roman Missal, impregnated as it is with the memory of the sufferings of the Redeemer. And the explanatory note goes on. The Church does not wish us to keep the day on which the Divine Lamb was immolated without having prepared our souls for our compassionating with Him in the sufferings which he endured on our behalf. In the old liturgy, the scholars tell us, this period was called Passiontide to indicate that from this Sunday on, the texts of the Mass would lay greater emphasis on the sufferings of Christ. But this is true, they assure us, also in the revised liturgy. The name Passiontide was eliminated, we're told, from a desire to preserve the internal unity of Lent. And our liturgist reminds us that the entire season of Lent speaks of the Lord's passage through suffering and death to resurrection. Whether or not we call it Passiontide, the shadow of the Passion certainly begins to penetrate these last weeks before the sunlight of Easter breaks through. Today's Gospel is already set in the Monday of Holy Week. Jesus has spent the night on Mount Olivet, Luke tells us and from early morning the people would gather round him in the temple to listen to him. And among these, we hear in John's Gospel, were some Greeks. Well, they hadn't yet reached Jesus, but they approach Philip, 
perhaps because he had a Greek name. The description, Greeks, tends to confuse most of us until the scholars explain that they were not Jews with a Greek culture, but Gentiles, proselytes, probably, writes one, men who accepted the God of the Jews but had not had themselves circumcised. And in fact, in the version which appears in the Old Roman Missal, the word used is Gentiles. A note in the Jerusalem Bible describes them as converts who observed certain specific mosaic observances. Whoever they were, they came to Philip, the man with the Greek name. It meant lover of horses. Andrew, too, has a Greek name, meaning strength. Perhaps these two knew Greek better than the other apostles, writes one scholar. They often appear together in John's Gospel. And they come from the same town, Bethsaida. And there, writes another, Jew and Gentile mixed and mingled. Bethsaida was the town of Peter, too, Andrew's brother. But it's a town which no longer exists, as the guidebook recounts. An ancient town of fishermen, as the name, which means house of fishing, implies. Although its exact site is not known, it is commonly accepted that Bethsaida was located on the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, in the Beteca Valley, a marshy area where rivers coming down from the Golan Heights drain into the sea. No place of worship commemorates its importance as the native town of Peter, Andrew and Philip, and the place where Jesus performed many miracles. Because its inhabitants did not accept Jesus and his teachings, Jesus cursed Bethsaida as he did Chorazin, saying, Woe to thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. It's thought that the curse was so powerful that Bethsaida completely disappeared from memory. But as traveller H.V. Morton reminds us, all the lakeside villages so well known to Jesus have disappeared from the map. Gafarnum included, though its ruins have been identified. Morton wrote that when travelling in the area, a little bay with a dark clump of eucalyptus trees was believed to mark the site of Bethsaida, and there we had better leave it. But what of Philip, who figures so importantly in the opening to our Gospel? He's never mentioned in the Synoptic Gospels, except when all the Apostles are listed by name. But John mentions him several times, and in particular records that the call of Philip came the day after that given to Peter and Andrew. Jesus, we're told, found Philip and said to him, Follow me. It's always intriguing to try and discover what sort of men our Lord chose to be his disciples and close friends. One writer who indulged in this was Alban Butler, whose Lives of the Saints, which first appeared in the mid-18th century, was revised two centuries later. But something of the original writer seems to emerge in this little biography of Philip. He seems to have belonged, we read, to a little group of earnest men who had already fallen under the influence of St John the Baptist. Let's hear what else he had to say. From the account given by the evangelist, we should naturally infer that Philip responded without hesitation to the call he'd received. He goes at once to find his friend Nathaniel and tells him, We have found him, of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, at the same time, Philip gives proof of a sober discretion in his missionary zeal. He doesn't attempt to force his discovery upon unwilling ears. 
When Nathaniel objects, can anything good come from Nazareth, his answer isn't indignant declamation, but an appeal for personal inquiry. Come and see. In the description of the feeding of the 5,000, Philip figures again. When Jesus, we're told, had lifted up his eyes and seen that a very great multitude cometh to him, he said to Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to try him, for he himself knew what he would do. Once more we get an impression of the sober literalness of St. Philip's mental outlook when he replies, Two hundred pennyworth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one may take a little. And now we come to the episode recounted in our Gospel today. Again, the writer's own perception of his protagonist comes out strongly. It's in accord with the same amiable type of character which hesitates before responsibilities that when certain Gentiles among the crowd who thronged to Jerusalem for the Pasch came to Philip saying, Sir, we would see Jesus, we find him reluctant to deal with the request without taking counsel. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew. Again, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Finally, another glimpse is afforded us of the Apostle's earnestness and devotion conjoined with defective spiritual insight. When on the evening before the Passion our Lord announced, No man cometh to the Father but by me. If you had known me, you would without doubt have known my Father also. And from henceforth you shall know him, and you have seen him. Philip saith to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus saith to him, have I been so long a time with you, and have you not known me? Philip, he that seeth me seeth the Father also. How sayest thou, show us the Father? Philip's question came immediately after one by Thomas. Jesus had said, You know the way where I am going. And Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And it was our Lord's answer to Thomas which provoked Philip's question. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Henceforth you know him and have seen him. In a meditation on God our Father, Mother Teresa begins with these words. The Father, the most beautiful gift that Jesus gave us on earth. He said it to Philip. To have seen me is to have seen the Father. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Perhaps a little sympathy for Philip might have been expressed by Butler, rather than dismissing him with defective spiritual insight. But our hagiographer concludes his life with these words. Apart from the fact that St. Philip is named with the other apostles who spent ten days in the upper room awaiting the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, this is all we know about him with any degree of certainty. Tradition, however, holds that he preached in Asia Minor and was possibly crucified at Ephesus at the age of about 87. But on that first Holy Week Monday, martyrdom would have been the last thing in Philip's mind, though the words Jesus then spoke were a blueprint for discipleship. The Son of Man was to be glorified. The grain of wheat had to die if it were to bear much fruit. A man who understood this message and put it into action was Ignatius of Antioch, the earliest apostolic father of the East, who was martyred in Rome around the year 107 AD. 
On his long journey across Asia, he wrote seven letters to as many Christian communities. The one he wrote to the Christians of Rome, begging them not to save his life, became a kind of martyr's manual. My message to all the churches and my injunction to all is that I am glad to go to my death for God's sake, if only you would do nothing to stop me. If you are silent and let me alone, I am a word of God. But if you desire me in the flesh, then I shall be again a mere cry. Grant me that I be poured out a libation to God while there is still an altar ready. Please do not be an unseasonable kindness to me. Let me be the food of the beasts through whom I can attain the presence of God. God's wheat am I, and I shall be ground by the teeth of the beasts that I may become the pure bread of Christ. Ignatius referred later on in this same letter to the bread of the Eucharist. I take no pleasure in the food of corruption or in the pleasures of this life. I desire the bread of God, that is, the flesh of Jesus Christ of the seed of David. And for my drink I want his blood, which is immortal love. A 20th century poet looks at the life-giving bread, the saving cup, from a different angle. Here is This Bread I Break by Dylan Thomas. This bread I break was once the oat, this wine upon a foreign tree, plunged in its fruit. Man in the day, or wind at night laid the crops low, broke the grape's joy. Once in this wind the summer blood knocked in the flesh that decked the vine, once in this bread the oat was merry in the wind. Man broke the sun, pulled the wind down. This flesh you break, this blood you let, make desolation in the vein, where oat and grape, born of the sensual root and sap, my wine you drink, my bread you snap. After he has declared that the man who hates his life in this world will preserve it in the next, and that to serve him he must follow him, Jesus mentions the Father. Anyone who serves me, the Father will honour. And it is as if by naming the Father that he suddenly realises what is about to overtake him. Writes Sheed. In all that had happened so far, Jesus had been the self we know, calm at the heart of a whirlwind, then it's as though the horror to come flooded in on him. For this instant, his control seemed close to breaking. Reading the Gospels, we've seen him angry, seen him compassionate, seen him sorrowful, seen him grieving, but always master. For the first time, we feel the mastery waver. Gethsemane was anticipated. My soul is troubled now, yet what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? And in Gethsemane he will say, Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. But an instant later, without pause, he adds, But it was for this that I came to this hour. As in the garden, he will make the same act of resignation. 
Nevertheless, let your will be done, not mine. In one of his meditations, Cardinal Newman wrote, After all his discourses were consummated, fully finished and brought to an end, then he said, The Son of Man will be betrayed to crucifixion. As an army puts itself in battle array, as sailors before an action clear the decks, as dying men make their will and turn to God, so, though our Lord could never cease to speak good words, did he sum up and complete his teaching, and then commence his passion. Then he removed by his own act the prohibition which kept Satan from him, and opened the door to the agitations of his human heart, as a soldier who is to suffer death may drop his handkerchief himself. At once Satan came on and seized upon his brief hour. Newman is talking about the Wednesday of Holy Week, where Matthew, opening chapter 26, says, When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. In our Gospel today, we are still four days away from Passover, and after his moment of, dare we call it, weakness, Jesus cries out, Father, glorify your name. And after the voice of heaven, which some take for thunder and others for an angel, our Lord's words, comments Sheed, were all of triumph. The moment of crisis was at hand, the supremely decisive moment for the whole world, never one like it before, never again to be one. For Satan's time as world ruler would be ended, with Christ raised on the cross to be the vital centre of a new humanity. Now, sentence is being passed on this world. Now, the prince of this world is to be overthrown. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I shall draw all people to myself.